This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Equity Live! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we do our best to help you learn to invest. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be talking stocks as always, but I guess even more so tonight, and that is because uh, tonight is fast becoming one of my favorite nights of the month, and that's because we get to chat with Julia Lee, who joins us uh, tonight. Welcome, Julia. Bryce, do you say that to everyone? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I am very truthful when I say this is uh, becoming... Uh, one of my favorite episodes, and I'm, and I'm sure Ren would agree, as would our listeners, because um, we're here for mastermind number two um, and very keen to see what uh, we've all chosen for the month. So happy to be here. I'm so glad you called me back because I had so much fun in the last couple of podcasts. So hopefully I can keep on talking to you guys. So for those that have just joined the show, welcome. Julia is an Australian equities analyst at Bell Direct, uh, a fantastic stock picker and uh, expert in the market. She has some great insights, particularly when it comes to the Australian market. So we're super excited to have her back on the show to, to talk all things stocks. To explain how this episode works, in case you are new, each month or thereabouts, Ren, Julia and myself will get together to each picture stock that we think is interesting or that we think has uh, some good investment opportunity, but we want to make it very clear that in no way is this a buy, hold or sell recommendation and that you should definitely be doing your own research on anything that we discuss tonight as it's general info and discussion only. So the idea of this session is really just to expose you all to the different ways in which we think about companies and, and go about researching them and also to learn from Julia herself, who has a, a, a massive wealth of experience in this area. So let's get stuck in. Is every, everyone ready? Ready. Yeah, very ready. Nice, Ren. Good to hear you're ready on board. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to kick off. Uh, if anyone else is desperate to, then uh, speak now, forever hold your peace. Okay, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so I have chosen... Ooh Media Limited. ASX ticker is OML. Uh, if you want to type it into Google, it's spelled double O-H exclamation media. Uh, I, I presume that is how it is pronounced as well. Um, OOH stands for out of house or out of home, and it's all to do with the advertising industry. And the, the reason I picked this one, uh, Julia and Ren, is uh, not from sort of like a value point of view or anything like that, but just because it, it really uh, interests me. Um, and it's a, it's an interesting space. So to give some insight into what Ooh Media does, 
It's a leading operator in Australia and New Zealand in the growing out-of-home advertising industry. So to give you guys an idea of what the out-of-home means, that is all things to do with uh, advertising space, obviously outside of your home and uh, outside of the traditional forms of media. So OO has over 30,000 different locations across Australia and New Zealand, all things to do with billboards uh, in major capital cities. So that's what they classify as their road. Uh, They have small and large formats in shopping centers. So that's retail. They have a flyer segment, which is your airport terminals, your lounges, the screens in in airplanes and, and that sort of stuff. And then they have commute as well. So your park benches and bus stations and that sort of stuff. So I'm sure you would have seen a lot of their assets spread out across Sydney and Melbourne. And that's sort of what piqued my interest into the company. So before I get any further into it, what are initial thoughts on Ooh Media? I like it. Um, I mean, most forms of advertising, they've been declining the traditional forms. So you're looking for these uh, structural tailwinds and Ooh Media, I think, has plenty of them. Where I don't know about you, but, you know, when I go to work in the morning during rush hour, I'm stuck in traffic and you know, when you're driving a car, you're not allowed to be on your phone, which means you're a captive audience. But basically, you're stuck on the roads for a longer amount of time, which means if you're advertising through the transport network, the increasing, I guess, travel times to work means that you're subject to more advertising. So, look, I think there's definitely some structural tailwinds that helps a stock like this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you mentioned there that uh, it, it's a reasonably fast-growing industry and that is – well, it's the second fastest-growing industry in terms of type of media behind uh, online, obviously, but convincingly beating your, your traditional forms of radio and print and, and TV and that sort of stuff. So it, it grew 10.8% last year, still has a reasonably small share of total marketing spend, but companies are certainly turning to this form of advertising as a, a new way of connecting and engaging with their audience and some research shows that coupled with your your online and perhaps some print media as well, the return on investment with campaigns that also make use of out of home, their return on investment is actually quite high. So yeah, I think one of the reasons that I do really like this company is because it's going through an interesting uh, strategic change at the moment and they're moving away from their traditional, I guess, analog type style of advertising, which is your traditional billboards and uh, with, the, with the print on the front to more of a digitally led approach. And so they've got uh, about half of their revenue is now uh, led from generated from their, their digital side. And that is coupled with the data that they are now partnering with, say, Quantium, who has a huge amount of, of scan data and, and data on uh, customer shopping behavior and that sort of stuff. So I think coupled with that, they have a really a quite a good, I guess, sales point compared to some of their competitors. Any thoughts, Ren? It's an interesting one for me and probably not a company I've thought that much about. I guess if you look at the advertising landscape, it seems one by one companies have been decimated by online. You know the rivers of the rivers of gold of print media have been sort of swept away, and then TV advertising followed. I guess my question is: outdoor advertising going to be the next domino to fall, or is it somehow immune from this online disruption that all these other forms of traditional media have seen? Um, without being an expert in big, the industry, big question. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> but look. I- I'm interested to hear Julia's thoughts on this, but my initial thoughts to that, and Julia sort of alluded to it before, is that 
Um, one of the advantages of this form of advertising is that you don't really get a choice when it comes to seeing it or not. Like it, it, it is there. And as companies get better, like as Uber Media gets better at understanding the audience that go past these forms of media on a daily basis, they can start to really tailor their sales pitch to advertisers. And so I think across all of their assets, uh, Umedia get exposure to 90% of the Australian population. So their reach is huge. And if they can turn that into a, a more meaningful and targeted advertising approach, then I don't necessarily, I don't really see this as the next uh, media asset or, or type of media to fall to the wayside of online. What are your thoughts on that, Julia? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I, I think Ren brings up a really good point, and that is whenever you see a structural change, and that is a longer-term trend that plays out over a number of years and maybe even decades, that there are winners and that there are losers. And the losers, obviously, from this digital shift are your traditional media. So if you think about it in terms of billboards, it would be your traditional billboards that are static. And in the old days, you know, you slop on some glue, you put your advertising up there, and that's it. If you think about that circumstance versus a digital billboard where you can charge people more money um, at peak times and then have a cycle and collect data, that's obviously an opportunity to lift your advertising revenue compared to a static billboard. So that digital shift means that, you know, the traditional form of media, the static form is probably dying out and less attractive. But the big winner is that move towards digital billboards and the more you get, the quicker you get, that's just going to mean that you're able to make more revenue from that space, not only because you can change the advertising during the day so you can have more than one company advertising on that billboard, but also the ability to tailor that billboard, whether it's through the weather or something that might be responding to conditions that are happening. So you can quickly change it rather than having to tear the billboard down. And then obviously the data that you can also link into that. Yeah, I think as you guys have been talking, I've sort of been thinking about it as well. And I guess, you know, we're not giving advice, but so so to be even-handed, I guess there's probably a couple of things you can add both to the bull case and the bear case around that. I guess if you look at the bear case and why online media may get follow that disruption path, I guess a lot of their advertising billboards and signage would be at places which are seeing reduced foot traffic, especially things like shopping malls and shopping centers and stuff like that. And so potentially there's reduced engagement there. 
And then, you know, at other places, things like train stations and bus stops and um, park benches, people are just on their phones rather than looking around. But then I guess on the bull side, you know, to what you were saying, Julia, technology today is has enabled so much, but technology in the future will be, you know, exponentially more effective at advertising to us through these digital billboards. Like imagine if your phone's location data was shared with Ooh Media and they knew when you were standing close to the billboard and they specifically targeted you. Or there was, you know, facial recognition on the billboard. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a, it's a fascinating company, Bryce. Yeah, I mean, from, you know, we, we work in retail and that sort of targeted promotion is something that we're certainly looking at very closely and I can definitely see this sort of technology down the track and yeah, Umedia is positioning themselves pretty well in their transition away from the, you know, the glue and, and paint on a, on a billboard to some really data-driven advertising assets. So yeah, very keen to keep an eye on this one and, and see how it all plays out over the next sort of couple of years. They just went through a pretty big acquisition to buy street furniture and, and the rail side of the business. And I think their next sort of state strategic stage is to really invest heavily more in the data and that side of things until they feel comfortable that they've got an end-to-end solution. So yeah. Hold on. Before before you move on, one qu- one question for you. Ooh Media, their big their big asset is billboards. What is the most valuable billboard in Australia? Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> Ren, you are known for being a stickler when it comes to these <laughs> these questions. Uh, look, it would have to be where the traffic most there was the most amount of traffic. I reckon. <laughs> I, I would I would also go uh, look to be honest I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head um, I would imagine that it is pretty somewhere in Sydney it is definitely somewhere in Sydney it, it is actually quite close to where you are Bryce we're not going to give away your address on the show <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the most valuable billboard is the in Australia is the coca-cola sign in King's Cross uh, but obviously that is owned by Coke, so yeah. not much chance of getting the Equity Mates billboard up there. <laughs> so the most valuable billboard in Australia where we will be able to put our logo one day yes. is the Sydney Ports billboard, actually owned by Ooh Media on Glebe Island. Uh, which overlooks Sydney's Anzac Bridge. You can get that for 28 days for a cool quarter of a million dollars, 250 grand. Wow. Oh, wow. And apparently that billboard is seen by 2.13 million people every month. Not me though. I can't, even, I can't picture it to be honest. But Yeah, neither can yeah. I to be honest. I know the one actually. It's, you know, when you're going across the Anzac Bridge towards Balmain and Leichhardt on the left-hand side where you have all those ships, I think where there's, they, they get fixed, there's a massive billboard and often it's advertising a car or something like that. Is that the one? Interesting. I'm going to. There you go. Well, that's. It sounds, sounds It right, must yeah. be, yeah. Now, here's an interesting one. Not to, not to just talk about most valuable billboards, but. Second most valuable billboard is uh, in Melbourne in uh, on Swanson Street, which is in the CBD. Goes for half the price of the most valuable, or almost half, one hundred and forty thousand dollars. But interestingly enough, it sees 
more than double the amount of people every month. Five, no, really? Yeah, 5.4 million people in Melbourne compared to 2.13 in Sydney. Is it owned by Ubi Media as well? No, it's owned by APN Outdoors, your biggest mm, rival. <laughs> well, maybe a couple of things. Maybe they have somehow determined that the ones driving past the Sydney one are somewhat more engaged or susceptible to seeing what's on the board. I thought you were going to say Sydney <laughs> Sydney people are more valuable than Melbourne people. Oh, well, that's a given. <laughs> anyway, that is an interesting start. That's a whole nother podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and before everyone comes at me on social media, I live in Melbourne. <laughs> okay, so that's that's U Media. As I said, if anyone wants to look it up, uh, OML is is the ticker. So, who wants to who wants to enter the Dragon's Den now and uh, <laughs> give us what you got? I guess I'll go next. <laughs> uh, my stock this week is Eclipse. ECX is the stock code. Now, this is a company that's been through a lot. At one stage, it was trading at close to $4.40. And I first bought into this stock at about $0.67. Cents. It's now recovered and it's trading around about $1.50. So, it's been a big winner in my portfolio but I'm thinking about adding to this position. I like Eclipse. Now, anyone who's not familiar with the company, this is a company that owned Grays Online. So, uh, you may be aware of the auction site that looks at, I guess, bankruptcies and trying to sell some of that industrial equipment, as well as, I guess, at its core, it's fleet leasing and novated businesses. So, this is where um, they'll buy and manage a range of cars for a company or they'll look at uh, Novator Lease, which is basically um, salary packaging and you get a car from your pre-tax um, salary rather than having to pay for a car from your after-tax salary. They're trying to get rid of their non-core assets. So, they've gotten rid of two of their assets, which is Grays Online and AreYouSelling.com. And this was at a $100 million. Uh, it was a non-cash loss. The biggest reason why its share price basically fell from $1.80 one day down to around about $0.90 cents the next day, um, halving in value, was because um, they came out with a lot of bad news around how especially Grays was going and some of its businesses. But that also triggered worries that this company would have to look at a capital raising. Now, their, their covenants or the lending covenants, the conditions to which the lenders will lend money to this company, are due for testing at the end of September, which is the end of their financial year. So, the good news is that $100 million loss that they've made on their divestment so far, the lenders aren't going to include that when they're covenant testing in September. So, that's great news for shareholders because it looks like they're not going to have to stump up any extra cash for this business. And then it's trying to get rid of its non-core businesses, which means it's going to refocus on what is at the core of their business. And that is the fleet leasing and the Novator businesses. Now, these two businesses, they're very stable and they have stable cash flows. And if we have a look at the first half of the financial year, it had earnings, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization. So, earnings of around about $40 million for the six months and Novated volumes were up by 10%. I always like to look for positive catalysts and the positive catalyst for me, this company, is that the market is going to, I guess, be less concerned about a possible capital raising and start to value this company back on its core assets, which should help to continue to lift sentiment and lift that share price. 
Julia, it's it's interesting because I'm just looking at Eclipse's uh, chart now, and you must have bought at exactly the bottom. It never dropped below sixty cents, and that was down about it was over eighty percent from its peak <laughs> about a year, year and a half before that. So I guess before we get into the company specifically, how did you know that sixty cents was the right time to buy? And um, then how have you, you know, it's it's a scary time when a company's fallen eighty percent plus. So how how did you know when to buy and that you were comfortable to hold it? Yeah, generally, I don't like to invest in turnaround stories because I'm very bad at picking them. Um, but in the past year, I've dabbled in trying to pick turnaround stories on the basis there's been a number of studies done on um, markets and. Ha- that they tend to overreact and underreact um, to both good news as well as bad news. In the market that we're in at the moment, we're, we're seeing some pretty extreme overreactions, I feel. So when it came to Eclipse, seeing a drop of, I, I don't know, it was about 50% in one session and then continuing to see it fall further, that that for me was a, a big overreaction. And I guess the, the question I ask myself when I'm looking at these overreactions is, are the conditions that are happening now going to get worse or continue on forever or is it something cyclical or will there be better news or more positive catalysts um, moving into the future? So um, with Eclipse, you know, I I figured that part of it was cyclical because of the business cycle and the conditions that they were seeing in some of their businesses. And then once I became more confident that they weren't going to have to um, tap into their balance sheet that they had a restructuring plan in place. I guess that my confidence in this company grew. The other one that I um, dabbled in after a, a big fall and continue to own is uh, BWX, which is a skincare company. It owns uh, a website called Nourished Life. And I'm very much into skincare, which is, I guess, not harmful for you. So it doesn't have parabens or sulfates and things like that. So Nourished Life uh, plays into that theme. And I can't remember what I bought the company for. I think I bought it at a dollar thirty-five initially, and then I sold it around two dollars. And I actually got back into this stock at about a dollar eighty-five a few weeks ago, and today it came back up to two dollars forty-six. I just think we're spending more on skincare that you know we're a bit more aware of what we put on our bodies um, as well as in our bodies, and I think that the market may have overreacted here as well. So. Um, it's not particularly usually what I specialize in, um, but both of those have been pretty good. Is AMP going to be a turnaround story? So, see, <laughs> this is a, the question I ask. What are the positive catalysts that could be on the horizon for AMP or are we likely to see more negative mm, catalysts? Mm. The positive catalyst in the case of AMP short term for me would be if the, the sale of their life insurance unit was restructured and still went through. Yeah. Remember, they were trying to sell that unit for $3.3 billion yeah. and it was the, the Bank of New Zealand, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand that uh, had conditions that made AMP issue that statement that the sale was unlikely to go through. I believe they're still in talks with that buyer, potential buyer, to try and restructure the business. And if you saw a restructuring of that business, that would be a pretty short-term catalyst for the company. I think longer term, it's harder because you have a number of not only legacy issues, so court cases, compensation, but looking into the future, you have issues as well, um, high compliance costs, um, lack of trust. And really at the heart of a, a finance company, 
I, I think it's trust. If you don't trust that manager with your life savings, um, you know, you basically don't have a business model. So, um, you know, if I was AMP, I'd change my name. That's <laughs> 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 just me. <laughs> Um, so they're the kind of questions I ask. Is it going to last forever or, you know, what would cause the share price to go up and yeah. what would cause the share price to go down yeah, and then the probability of that. So, Julia, we, um, we've gone on a bit of, bit of a tangent here, uh, albeit, an, albeit an interesting <laughs> one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. Ren, it's your well, turn. Now, if we go back to it, you, you picked the turnaround. You picked that the market overreacted. I guess the second part of it is, was there anything about the company or about the uh, vehicle leasing space in general that uh, meant that you liked it as an investment as well? Or was it purely the market overreaction that you were playing on? Uh, it was the market overreaction. And at the time, they were supposed to um, have a merger or there was a takeover with Macmillan Shakespeare. Um, and because of the profit downgrade that came through, that t- takeover obviously didn't go ahead. What I figured was if a company like that was interested in taking it over and they withdrew, they possibly could have still been interested in taking over Eclipse, but maybe at a lower price. So they weren't necessarily gone forever. So just balancing sort of the probabilities eclipse was one where i was i was pretty comfortable not all of them work out for example i've also liked um new farm as a i guess this is a cyclical agricultural stock and generally the rule with agricultural stocks is that you buy during drought or bad weather and then you sell when crops are really good but unfortunately the drought has lasted a lot longer than anyone actually thought so the cycle you know I bought into it and it kept on going down so in scenarios like that I I have a very strict cut your losses early and I don't mind being wrong but when it comes to the share price continuing to fall I get out of there pretty quickly. I guess one question I have, I don't really know much about the fleet leasing business at all, but I'm wondering if this is an industry that is susceptible to um, economic like cyclical change or I know we're in a pretty subdued market at the moment in terms of wage growth and that sort of stuff, but do you see any of those headwinds having sort of much of an impact on on, uh, Eclipse going forward or is this something that they can sort of stray away from based on the lease nature of of, – Leases. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's definitely cyclical. So, um, because we we are going through a bit of a slowdown in the economy at the moment, you'd have to see that that its business will probably get better as the economy gets better as well. The biggest threat, I think, to companies like Eclipse is that we see changes in tax law. Because if you think about salary packaging and novated leases, they're all built around fringe benefits tax. Um, so if you saw changes in fringe benefits tax, you know, their business model would ultimately be decimated. So that would be the biggest risk I see as a company like this. And for me, economic cycles are normal. You just work them into your investment thesis and in terms of timing your way into um, investments. Nice. Good pick. I think, um, you know, I like the way that you, you use the price movement as a way of piquing your interest in it. And something I've been thinking about with AMP, to be honest, is I'm sure people are looking at it as a as a investment uh, to get into now with the, the hope, I guess, that over the next sort of year they can sort it out. But as you said, that short-term catalyst in terms of their sale of their business will probably be something that everyone's keeping an eye on. Yeah, because if they can't work it out and they do a discount of capital raising, oh, yeah, <laughs> ugly. 
All right. Well, Ren, do you have anything to add or do you want to kick into yours? Look, I don't think anything we say will change Julia's opinion. She's made 130% (laughs) or something like that on the stock. So good good pick. Very well done. Nice. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I might get into mine. What is it? Okay. So the company that I have picked for this mastermind session is Brambles, ASX BXB. Now, the reason that I like this company I actually love this company as a company. I don't want to you know, talk about it as an investment. <laughs> but but the Bramble's biggest company is Shep. Now, some people may be familiar with Shep's pallets, but I am just astounded that they've been able to make a business out of this. They have taken essentially a commodity product, a few pieces of wood nailed together, and have been able to charge an absolute premium for it. So the the Shep business model is they rent out pallets to other businesses to then move their goods, you know, in transit, on trucks, on trains, whatever it is. Uh, you rent the pallets from Shep, from Shep. If you lose them, you pay to replace them. And if you damage them, you pay to replace them. And essentially what Shep have managed to do is take a commodity product, wood with a bit of paint on it, and uh, charge a premium for it. So... Just from a business standpoint, I, um, I, I love the business model. Um, the company, it trades for $12.15 at the moment. It's up about 23% year to date. It's not just Australian. It in, operates in 60 countries across three major segments, pallets being the main one, returnable plastic crates or reusable plastic crates, the second one, and then containers as the third one. It does about $6 million in revenue and it made about $800 million in profit off that revenue. So it's a big company um, and it has about 500 million pallets, crates or containers out in the market. So it's a, it's a big driver. It's a, a giant in the uh, logistics space. It enables a lot of transport. But the reason I, I think, or one of the reasons why I think it's a great company is that Australia has a real structural problem that really works for Shep's Australian business's advantage. And that is, for whatever reason, Australia decided that it wants different dimensioned pallets to every other country. So there's an Australian standard pallet and then there's an international standard pallet. And what that means is that a lot of the, if there are overseas players that want to sell, you know, logistics solutions, sell pallets into Australia, then they've got to produce a whole different dimension of pallets to, uh, satisfy the Australian market. So Shep being, having an Australian arm and being well-established in Australia is has a sort of structural advantage over some of its international competition. And then the last thing that I like about it, and the reason why I've chosen it this time, is that it has pro, it's proven to be an adept buyer and seller of businesses in the space. And so recently it sold a its European plastic container business for about US uh, $2.5 billion, which it bought about a decade ago for $1.25 billion. So it's been it's been a really good allocator of capital, I guess, in that transaction, bought at the bottom of the market, coming out of the concerns around the JFC, and a decade later sold it for double that amount of money. And it's using that money to pay down some debt to shore up its balance sheet, uh, to buy back some shares and then pay a one-off. It's not calling it a dividend, it's calling it a cash return, I think. And I just think that it's putting the company's putting itself in a really good place for whatever comes next. You know, if there is some 
market uncertainty driven by a trade war and a slowdown in global trade, I think Brambles may be in a good position to pick up another company on the cheap like it did in 2010. Yeah, that's that's why I've chosen it for this one. Nice, Ren. I think I can certainly understand what you're talking about because we, we use, obviously, well, we have to use CHEP through work and I think it's got a fantastic moat and we definitely experience the the difficulties in in terms of having to comply with CHEP if we're you know, talking from to international suppliers and trying to bring stuff in. So they are positioned really well. I guess my only question is, you know, the, the wooden pallet has done pretty well for itself over the last few years. I, I, know, I know that um, a number of organizations in retail are starting to just try to disrupt that in terms of the, the, using different materials to make pallets at different sizes that I guess fit uh, the future of uh, retail distribution. Is this something Brambles or, or, and Chet themselves, do you think, will start to innovate themselves or, or h- how do you see them playing in the space of at- pallets outside of the traditional wooden 1400 by 11 or whatever it is? Yeah, so it's a good question. Shep have a, you know, they have plastic pallets and they have different size pallets um, as well. So they're, you know, they're obviously playing in that space as well. I think if you think about the bulk of transit that's happening across Australia at the moment, there's still a lot of it that's just being moved by traditional freight. It's not uh, being disrupted in the same way. Maybe more consumer-facing ends of the supply chain are being disrupted. So I think, yeah, there, there will definitely be disruption, but the timber pallet has survived a long time. And I guess that saying about trying to invent a better mousetrap may apply here. A lot of people may try and invent a better pallet, but timber's cheap and Shep's big. So um, they've got a few structural things going for them. So I have a question for you, Ren. Um, I guess looking at Brambles, um, you know, they've done really well from the acquisition and the sale of this business and shareholders have been rewarded through that buyback program where they're returning that capital. But buying the company now, um, what is it that's going to increase the share price um, over the next sort of two to three years? Is it, um, you know, that we're going to see more chip pallets out yes. there or it's just purely acquiring businesses? So for, for me, I think you would buy it looking to see it acquire something else in the future, looking for it to grow. I think we've, we've sort of touched on organic growth maybe being diffi- more difficult to come by and you sort of see that in their, their income line. Their revenue's grown but their income not, not as much. So, yeah, you, you'd really be looking at a, a catalyst in the form of an acquisition I think you would also have to be a little bit concerned about the slowdown in global trade having an impact on their share price and on the vo- on the volume of share pallets being used. So I think you'd have to be uh, maybe thinking a little bit more long-term with this one. I don't think it's going to be like Eclipse that rose over 100% in a few months. <laughs> Um, so, Ren, when I think of um, Brambles, I think of it as um, an Aussie dollar play. And you mentioned that CHEP operates in 60 different countries. And I guess a major market is the US. Um, and, you know, an amazing performance by Brambles this year, up 20% in 2019 so far. So, I went back to see when was the last time that Brambles had a better performance. And that was in 2013, where the share price rose 30%. And I guess the common thread there is the weaker Australian dollar. And that's one of 
of the conditions around, um, I guess, the outperformance that we've seen from Brambles. So, does your expectations around the Aussie dollar versus the US currency play a large part of um, why why you like Brambles now as well? So, I, I don't have a good view on where the Aussie dollar is going against the US. So, it, it, that hasn't factored massively into my um, into my thinking. I guess for people out there or people like me who haven't thought about it, what should we be uh, thinking of or how do you think about uh, companies like Brambles in the context of Aussie dollar movements? I mean, the only reason I ask is um, usually when the Aussie dollar is weaker, I notice a basket of stocks that tend to go up um, and Brambles is usually one of them, Amcor is one of them, uh, stocks like Macquarie Group, which have a lot of their revenue offshore and stocks like Cochlear and ResMed, which have a large portion of their business in the US as well. So, um, I guess it's it's been great, the weaker Aussie dollar on Brambles, but um, obviously um, over in, in the US, we've seen some strong growth in food and beverages as well, which has helped the stock this year. But great performance, up 20% in 2019. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, fantastic. So, Ren, uh, just a quick one to, to, to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering if Bramble, sorry, yeah, well, Brambles or Chet um, have any major competitors in Australia or do they just have a stranglehold on, on the pallet business here? So, they do. Um, Loscombe's obviously a big one and then there are some other manufacturers, um, but Shep seem to have a foot in the door with a lot of the big uh, logistics providers. Mm. So, they, they have um, some structural advantages there. In terms of market share, that is something I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But I would, I would imagine that they have a pretty dominant um, share of the Australian market at the very least. Yeah, nice. I think I, think I was reading somewhere that like 15% of timber used in the US is used to make Shep pallets or something stupid. Wow. That, that could be me misremembering that. But, yeah, they are, they're big. Nice, Ren. Do you have uh, any other questions for for Ren, Julia? Um, No, I'm going to go back and have another look at Brambles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's leave it there then, then guys. I think that was a a really good uh, mastermind number two. I I got a heap out of it and um, if anything, uh, two stocks that I wasn't really aware of and it's been great to get some insight into into Eclipse and Brambles. So just to recap, we had uh, Ooh Media, Eclipse and Brambles. We had influence from currency there, rebound story from Eclipse and a bit of structural change going on at Ooh Media. So really appreciate you joining us, Julia. And um, Ren, thanks for joining after all our technical difficulties. <laughs> finally, finally made it. Um, and look, very much look, looking forward to our, our next session, Julia. And, and once again, um, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely love these podcasts. So thanks for having me on again. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful.